Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. This afternoon I want to pick up on a question that came from the back somewhere about um, enlightenment or awakening and uh, try to explore and unpack this a bit. We often use the word enlightenment, um, I think in a very sort of uh, general way, um, without actually asking what is perhaps a more interesting question, enlightened about what? When we say that someone is enlightened, and frequently we're very generous in how widely we, we extend that possibility, that the Buddha was enlightened, that Jesus was enlightened, that Rumi was enlightened, that, and the list is endless. Dalai Lama is enlightened. What would an enlightened person do if... <laughs> now, of course, this is a central term in Buddhism, I do think it's probably worth pointing out that enlightenment is not the most accurate translation of the original term bodhi, or sambodhi, which means more literally awakening. And I've noticed recently that people seem to think there are two different ideas, there's enlightenment and there's an awakening. It's actually the same term, that distinction is not made in Pali or Sanskrit. And I prefer to use the word awakening. But it still begs the question, awakened to what? Now, just to get a sense of, um, of where we are in relation to this particular point, I'm going to read out a couple of passages from the Pali canon, from Sutta, from Discourses, both passages are spoken by the Buddha himself, and both passages are very explicit as to what awakening consists of. But I'm not going to tell you the key term. I'm going to substitute that with X. And I want you to tell me what you think X stands for in these two passages. It's the same. In both passages, X is the same. This is the Buddha speaking. As long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about X, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. 
Next passage. Whoever in the past, the present, or the future becomes fully awakened to things does so by becoming fully awakened to X. What's X? Do you want to just go around the room? Anybody can, yes? Life. Four Noble Truths. Four Noble Truths, twice. Nintendo. Nintendo. <laughs> Suffering. Experience. Self. What is. What is. Senses. Nature. Nature. Love. Love. The breath. The breath. Impermanence. Impermanence. Dependent arising. Pain. Pain. That's about the same as suffering, I think. This moment. They did well. Okay. <laughs> um, some common ones that are often given when I do this little quiz. Nirvana, the unconditioned, emptiness, mind. You see, they did not say that. They didn't say that. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> now, the correct answer, which, which two people got right, is Four Noble Truths. As long as my, this is the Buddha speaking, as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about the Four Noble Truths, in fact, he slightly qualifies it, he says, the 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world. And that's from the, uh, the Buddha's first sermon. So it's not as though I've tracked down some obscure text somewhere. But in fact, this is a very important and very central text that I suspect many of you have read and it's the discourse he gave after his awakening under the tree in Bodhgaya and then went to the deer park in Sarnath and addressed his five former companions in asceticism and this is the passage that occurs as the culmination of that text um, very very clear a very very central and important text and likewise, the second one, whoever in the past, the present, or the future becomes fully awakened to things does so beca by becoming fully awakened to the Four Noble Truths. Now, apart from the two people who got it right, who perhaps are familiar with the text, or perhaps heard a tape recording of me doing the same thing, <laughs> I don't know. They could have known it. But I must commend those two voices um, because usually when I do this, nobody gets it right. And the range of answers we get tend to be the ones that um, you also gave with a few others. Now, um, I think this raises some interesting questions. First of all, um, most of you did not say the Four Noble Truths. Most of you... Uh, tended to single out one thing, whether it be life or suffering, dependent origination. Dependent origination is fairly close. Suffering, again, is the first of the four truths. So we're quite close. But the interesting thing is that we, there's a, a, a tendency to think that this awakening was about one particular feature of reality. 
or sometimes reality itself with a capital R, or life, or, or truth. That seems to be a kind of default assumption. And I think when we use the word in a sort of uh, general sense, when we talk about a person being enlightened, we tend, I think, to feel that that person has gained some, some privileged insight into the core reality of experience or life that has somehow made a qualitative difference, a qualitative transformation uh, to who they are and how they see the world. I think one of the reasons that we tend to assume there is one key element in this awakening is perhaps because we tend to think of the awakening, and this is reinforced in some ways by Buddhist tradition itself, as a quasi-mystical sort of experience. The Buddha was a mystic, and he had this shattering insight under the Bodhi tree. And in some ways, we like to think or we assume that this is sort of similar to the kind of experience other mystics have. In theistic traditions, of course, the answer would be God, or something like that. And I think, or, and I think there's also a tendency to think that uh, this awakening is to, to awakening to something which transcends the the um, the plurality and the complexity of this world, and that touches into some sort of ultimate or absolute truth. Now, Buddhism. of course, does use that expression, the absolute truth, the ultimate truth. And when I was trained in uh, the Tibetan tradition and in the Zen tradition, the answer that my teachers would have given to this question would have been respectively emptiness and mind. But what constituted mind with a capital M? What constituted the Buddha's awakening for, uh, for my Tibetan teacher would have been uh, a direct, non-conceptual understanding of the emptiness of inherent existence of all things. The emptiness of, of, of a fixed self, the emptiness of something which is not contingent, the absence of inherent existence. And that's what I was trained to believe. Likewise, this is sometimes seen as synonymous with selflessness or not self that's what was the key to the Buddha's awakening in the Zen tradition and we find this also in, in some of the other Tibetan traditions the idea is that the awakening is an awakening to some greater consciousness not the ordinary everyday fluctuating mind that we have to cope up, put up with all the time but some greater mind or the heart mind the shin or the Rigpa, or something of that order, which is likewise assumed to have some kind of ultimate or absolute existence. Uh, something all worth pointing out also here, I think, is that although Buddhism, all Buddhist schools, including the Theravada school, the Mahayana schools, they all present um, the Buddha's teaching in terms of what was uh, teaching which was ultimately true or absolutely true, as opposed to one that's just relatively or conventionally true. This is the doctrine of the two truths. But curiously, we do not find a single mention of that 
anywhere within the discourses of the Pali Canon. Buddha never used those words, never used that, made that distinction. And so what I'm getting at is that when the Buddha speaks of his awakening, at least in these two contexts here, he doesn't single out some kind of higher truth that triggered his waking up. But rather, he speaks of four truths. Now that might strike us, some of us at least, as a bit odd. Four truths. Does this mean that he had four separate awakenings? One for each truth? Or if we look at the text more exactly, twelve aspects of the four truths? Does that mean he had twelve little awakenings that all added up together made a big awakening? What does that mean? It seems characteristic of the Buddha's teaching, and I'm sure most of us are aware of this, that the Buddha seems constantly to move away from simplicity to complexity. Like, for example, when he speaks of, uh, of our experience, our body-mind experience, he talks of it as, as being constituted by five aggregates. Now, I remember when I first came across this teaching of the five aggregates, I would ask myself, why five? Why five aggregates? And then when you get a, a more detailed explanation of each of the five aggregates, each one breaks down further. The rupa, the, the material aggregate, which we sometimes mistakenly think of just refers to the body, doesn't. It refers to the four elements, both those in the body and those outside the body. It talks about um, uh, the, 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 what we see, hear, smell, taste, touch. That's all part of, of rupa. The sound, smells, tastes, touches, textures. It's all rupa. Feeling. Feeling, again, is not just feeling. It's pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, and everything in between. It's a range of things. Perception. Again, a multitude of perceptions that constitutes our experience. Inclinations or volitional formations. Often, when they are enumerated later, come to something like 52 or something. Consciousness. Consciousness is not spoken of as a singular kind of pristine awareness, but rather it's spoken of as visual consciousness, audio consciousness, olfactory, gustatory, tactile, mental, and mental consciousness. Six consciousnesses. I think this is saying something rather important if we try to get to what it is that is uh, distinctive in the Buddha's teaching. It's going very much against the grain of what would have been expected of, let's say, an enlightened person at the Buddha's time. If you, look at, if you read the Upanishads, then you find very much that the, the liberated sage is a person who has, um, has withdrawn their attention away from the, the complex sensory world and peered back into the innermost sources of their own experience into a state which is often considered to be beyond waking state, sleeping state, dreaming, uh, sorry, dreaming state and deep sleep state into this fourth state called Turiya, in which there is no such distinction at all, 
where one finds uh, for oneself the profound unity, the unitary experience of one's truest self and God. A unitary consciousness. Or in, in some of the texts, it will argue that you can't give any label or appellation or name to such an experience. It transcends all concepts and words. And that is the liberating experience that lies deep within ourselves, in our innermost core, and has really nothing whatsoever to do with our day-to-day -day experience of the phenomenal world. Now, when the Buddha starts speaking about meditation, he does something very different. Um, he actually... I'm going to read out a section from the Satipatthana Sutta. If I can find it. Now here's the Buddha describing how he, he would uh, encourage his students to meditate. He says, And how monks does a monk abide contemplating the body as a body? Again, the body, not the mind. He starts with the body. Here a monk gone to the forest or to the root of a tree or to an empty hut sits down, having folded his legs crosswise, set his body erect, and established mindfulness in front of him, Ever mindful he breathes in, mindful he breathes out. Breathing in long, he understands, I breathe in long. Or breathing out long, he understands, I breathe out long. Again, monks. A monk is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, when looking ahead and looking away, when flexing and extending his limbs when wearing his robes and carrying his bowl, when eating, drinking, consuming and tasting, when defecating and urinating, when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking and keeping silent. So once again, we have this emphasis on um, opening one's senses, opening one's uh, attention of cultivating mindful awareness of the specifics of our body, of our bodily actions. All of this has to do with the body. This is where the practice begins, by a renewed encounter with our phenomenal existence as embodied physical creatures inhabiting a complex world of the senses. Now this, of course, is entirely... Uh, consistent with his emphasis on his awakening being about the Four Noble Truths. This is what we have to try and unpack. What does that mean? I think what it points to quite clearly is that his awakening is much more about a process than it is to any state. A process of living and a process that starts with uh, an uh, embrace of the, of the painful dimension of life, or the, the dukkha dimension. I'd rather not translate dukkha in a sense. Well, I'll look at it a bit more carefully in a minute. That starts with our, our fully knowing of dukkha, 
that leads to a falling away or a letting go of grasping or craving, that leads to moments when that craving or grasping stop, which leads to the possibility of living in this world unconditioned by craving. And that's called the Eightfold Path, which, as I mentioned this morning, has to do with every aspect of our humanity. Again, once again, we find that the Buddha is, is, is making things more complex, more detailed, emphasizing how all of these things are impermanent, that they're not perfect, they're flawed, they won't last. And also noticing that none of this experience is essentially me or mine. It is not self. That's, how, that's what he means by anatta. He doesn't mean there is no self, as it is sometimes, I think, erroneously translated. But it means none of this fluid process of life is reducible to me or mine. There's something impersonal about this process we call life. Now, I want to read this, so I want to spend this afternoon and probably tomorrow morning looking more carefully at this first sermon. And I think probably the best thing to do, because I've actually just quoted you the very, the penultimate uh, paragraph, I'd like to go back to the beginning and read the whole thing. It's quite short, it only takes about three or four minutes. And, by happy coincidence, there is a translation of this in Appendix 3 of my new book. <laughs> so this text has come to be known as Turning the Wheel of Dumbo. That's not actually the title given to it uh, in, in the canon, but that's what it's known as. It's the first teaching. This is what I heard. The Buddha was staying at Baranasi in the deer park at Isipatana. And he addressed the group of five. One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Which two? Infatuation, which is vulgar, uncivilized, and meaningless. And mortification, which is painful, uncivilized, and meaningless. I have awoken to a middle path that does not lead to dead ends. <coughs> it is a path that generates vision and awareness. It leads to tranquility, insight, awakening, and release. It has eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, or being mindful, and concentrating. This is suffering, dukkha. Birth is painful. Aging is painful. Sickness is painful. Death is painful. Encountering what is not dear is painful. Separation from what is dear is painful. Not getting what one wants is painful. In short, this psychophysical condition is painful. 
This is craving. It is repetitive. It wallows in attachment and greed, obsessively indulging in this and that, craving for stimulation, craving for existence, craving for non-existence. This is cessation, the traceless fading away and cessation of that craving, the letting go and abandoning of it, freedom and independence from it. And this is the path, the path with eight branches, appropriate seeing, thinking, talking, acting, working, trying, recollecting, concentrating. Such is dukkha, or suffering. It can be fully known. It has been fully known. Such is craving. It can be let go of. It has been let go of. Such is cessation. It can be experienced. It has been experienced. Such is the path. It can be cultivated. It has been cultivated. Thus there arose in me illumination about things previously unknown. And as long as my knowledge and vision was not entirely clear about these twelve aspects of the Four Noble Truths, I did not claim to have had a peerless awakening in this world with its humans and celestials, its gods and devils, its ascetics and priests. Only when my knowledge and vision was clear in all these ways did I claim to have had such awakening. The freedom of my mind is unshakable. There will be no more repetitive existence. This is what he said. Inspired, the five delighted in his words. While he was speaking, the dispassionate, stainless Dharma I arose in Kondanya. He was the elder of the group who said, whatever has started can stop, or whatever arises ceases. Now this is a text that um, I don't believe is a kind of literal transcription of his first words. If someone had had a microphone there in the Deer Park at that time, I doubt very much that this is what we would have as a direct transcript. This, has, uh, this text has the feel of something that has been very closely worked and reworked. Uh, unlike many other discourses in the canon, it's very short. It's devoid of much repetition, and it is a very uh, clearly uh, structured in a way that a lot of the discourses are not. They tend to ramble on a bit. This, this therefore, I think is... Um, a text that was probably worked on throughout much of the Buddha's teaching life until it reached uh, a, for a formulation that became, as it were, uh, sort of codified. It's one of the most translated uh, texts in the Buddhist tradition. Um, one scholar worked, discovered 17 different versions in 
Pali, Sanskrit, Tibetan and Chinese. And there are slight variations again within these versions, but they're all basically the same. So in other words, it is a core text. And since it um, articulates uh, what the Buddha uh, understands as his awakening, which is, after all, the event on which the entire edifice of Buddhism is built, you take out the Buddha's enlightenment, you really don't have a ground on which to uh, construct or, or develop any theories or ethical systems or anything. It's all contained in this primary text, which is why I feel it behoves us, if we're interested in Buddhism or Buddhist meditation, to have some kind of familiarity with this, um, with this piece of writing. And as you can see, it's not particularly difficult. I don't think you sat there and it made no sense at all. Um, on the contrary, it seems to be fairly straightforward. But as with a lot of classical texts of, of this order, although it appears at first reading to be relatively straightforward, it's one of those strange documents that the more you read it, the more you go back to it, the more it reveals. It's a classical text in that sense. It's, it, it seems almost inexhaustible in what it can bring out if you think about it, if you then try to put its precepts into practice, if you deepen in your own meditation, your own reflections, your own life in the world and come back to it, you will probably find unsuspected layers of meaning that lie beneath the surface. At least that's been my experience. I've been working with this text for, for a long time now, um, not since my very beginning of Buddhism, but especially in the last few years. Um, I've studied, studied it in Pali, I've translated it, um, and I think about it a lot. Now, first of all, before we go into the 12 aspects of the Four Noble Truths, which seem to be the key to it, in terms of defining this awakening, it's probably useful to just reflect on, on how the, the ideas are ordered and structured. The first thing he declares is the middle way, the, the, the Eightfold Path. And then without any formal transition, he jumps straight into a definition of each of the four truths. Um, this is suffering, this is craving, this is cessation, this is the path. The next section, he um, explains how each of these four truths is to be acted upon in a particular way. In other words, there's not a sort of blanket, we must come to understand the four truths, but each one calls for a particular response. <coughs> suffering is to be known or fully known, Craving is to be let go of. Cessation is to be experienced, or the word in Pali literally means seen with your own eyes. And the path is to be created and cultivated. And only when that has been done, <coughs> when you have recognized, performed, and accomplished each task, can the Buddha say, then I was awake. So his awakening is, and this is how we get these 12 aspects, his awakening is that he has recognized, one, 
performed two, accomplished three of four tasks or four truths makes 12. That's how it works. So in other words, um, he recognizes that within each truth there is a complex task to perform. And it's only when each of those tasks has been performed that he could consider himself to be a Buddha. Until then, he couldn't. We're going to go back to that. But going, first of all, just referring to the metaphor I, I used this morning, we have this story of the man who goes into the forest, he discovers this ancient path that leads to this ancient city. And when the Buddha explains what they mean, the ancient path is the Eightfold Path, and the ancient city, or, the, or let's say the rebuilding of the ancient city, is the Four Noble Truths. Now that's exactly the same structure as this text. We start with the Eightfold Path, which leads to the Four Noble Truths. And then the task in the parable is for the king or the royal minister to rebuild the city. And that is equivalent to the, the, the completing of the tasks that each truth requires. In other words, it's an action, it's a, it's a task. And I think it's particularly pertinent that the Buddha in the parable describes this task as being a community endeavor. It's not as though the man goes back to the forest and just starts putting the city back together again by himself. No. He goes to the king. He goes to the powers that be who have the resources and who are able to call forth uh, laborers and artisans and whatever are needed and together you recreate the city. Or let's just say you create the city. So this endeavor is not a solitary spiritual pursuit but it is one that entails cooperation. And of course a city, another one of the, uh, the great symbolic meanings of a city, is that it is a, a concentration of human uh, skills and human uh, uh, activities that um, are able to work in concert. I think one of the reasons the Buddha describes the the dead ends he speaks of as village-like is because in a village you have relatively few resources. You have people who basically can do the different tasks required to bring the harvest to fruition and mend the roofs of the buildings, but you don't have a degree of complexity in organization that enables specializations to develop. You will not find in a village enough resource to start developing, let's say, a program of scientific research or the development of a, a theology or a philosophy or the creation of, say, um, an economic system, a banking system. You just don't have the resources. It's, the city is, must have been felt at its inception as being profoundly liberating and creative because human beings are able to pool their resources, divide their labors uh, unto those who are best equipped to do certain tasks, and thereby begin generating a culture and a civilization. It requires 
complex human organization. And I think it's very telling that the Buddha regards the practice of the Four Noble Truths as comparable to establishing a city. It's not just something you do on your tod. It's something we do together. Now, if we go back to the, the, the first um, uh, part of this text, uh, he says, One gone forth does not pursue two dead ends. Now, one gone forth, this is parabajika, or parabajaka. It, it means someone who has left home and gone forth into the homeless life. Now, again, one might today think that this is about leaving the city behind. But in fact, I think it's not so much about that at all. It's leaving behind certain ties that prevent you from flourishing as a person. It leaves behind uh, attachments to place, a fixed sort of idea you have of being this or that, a kind of a, an ego, someone who feels secure in a particular place, in a particular position, in a particular role, in a particular religion, in a particular political party, let's say, and is willing to step out of that fixed identity in order to um, <coughs> encounter what you do not know. Uh, dead ends, and the, the word is usually translated as extreme, but the word in Pali is anta, which literally means end. It's the same word as in vedanta, Vedanta means the end of the Vedas, the culmination of the Vedas. And that is the text called the Upanishads. Anta, though, in Buddhism, has a generally negative connotation. Um, it means something like limit or border, something that kind of constrains or um, uh, confines you. It's confinement. And one of the words the Buddha uses for Mara, the demonic, or the devil, is Antaka, Antaka, which means the one who imposes limits, limit situations. And Mara is understood both psychologically, um, in other words, all of those uh, attachments, those fears, um, aversions, uh, self-centered opinions that somehow confine or constrict you, that prevent you from actually um, uh, li moving out into the flow of life itself. You spend so much of your time preserving and protecting and guarding your sense of me as separate, me as a part rather than uh, being willing to take risks to, do, to act otherwise, to do otherwise. And this is a condition of dukkha. And the Buddha describes it in two ways. He says, on the one hand, this kind of dead end manifests as um, indulgence, or I've translated it here, infatuation. In other words, it's attachment, uh, as a fixation, uh, uh, 
being somehow convinced that if only I could get things the way I want them, then I'd be happy. And I think we can probably all see that we do this to some extent, if not all of the time. Uh, we spend a lot of time trying to sort of manipulate and control our environment. Um, nowadays, we, a lot of people you know, find themselves doing psychotherapy and so on. I think very often in order to try to, 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 to gain some control over the rather unruly elements of the world, whether they be outside us or whether they be inside us, it's an attempt to somehow try to control things. And although we might succeed sometimes very well, sometimes only partially, the cost of that success very often is that we don't actually uh, um, fulfill ourselves. We achieve a degree of security, perhaps, but very often at the price of cutting ourselves off from the the fluid, unraveling, unpredictable unknowns of the world. Uh, the Buddha has a wonderful expression that appears in a number of passages in the Pali Canon. He says, and this is referring to the home homelessness idea, he says, life in a home is covered with dust. Life gone forth is open wide. In other words, this idea of dust if you stay still in, in, in one place, dust begins to settle. You might have noticed this. <laughs> Things get covered up just by the sheer inertia of, of the static situation. Things which initially struck one as very um, agreeable, very pleasant, very attractive, become dull and dusty, whether that be literally or whether it be that you get bored with them. And that triggers then this yearning to have something else, to move on to another situation over which you have control. And the problem with this is that you expend a lot of energy trying to achieve these goals, but in the end, existentially, you feel that you really haven't moved on at all. That you're still the same sort of rather anxious child who hasn't really quite let go of uh, this compulsive habitual activity that is a bit like the experience of just running on the spot. Expends a lot of energy, we don't actually get anywhere. And the second of the two um, uh, dead ends the Buddha speaks of is when we then have the idea that, well, this is not working, this accumulation, attachment, greed, and so on. Let's now punish ourselves. Let's now adopt a way of life in which we, instead of uh, uh, gratify our senses, we deliberately try to um, block them. We try to inhibit them. We impose all sorts of rules and regulations on our lives. And a great deal of spiritual or religious behavior, unfortunately, tends to go in this kind of way. Now, there's a very striking passage I found in the, uh, the Udana, which is uh, one, of, uh, one, of, one, of, one of the shorter texts within the Pali Canon. And um, 
the Buddha here gives a rather striking illustration of what these dead ends are. He says, what has been attained or accomplished and what is still to be accomplished, both of these are littered with dust for a frail person. Those who hold training as the essence or who hold virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy, and service as the essence, this is one dead end. And those with such theories and such views as there's nothing wrong in indulging my sensory desires, this is the other dead end. Both these dead ends cause the cemeteries to grow. And the cemeteries cause wrong views to grow. By not penetrating these two dead ends, some hold back and some go too far. Now what is perhaps rather surprising about that passage is that the Buddha is not saying that the dead end of mortification is um, you know, doing some kind of extreme ascetic practice. And that's how it's often explained, that mortification means standing on one leg for 15 years or staring at the sun for hours on end or lying on a bed of nails, uh, which are the kind of almost caricatures of um, what may have been the case, and still is the case some places in India, where people believe that it's only by punishing oneself, by pushing the body to its limits, by starving oneself, that one achieves a kind of transcendence where one's no longer bound by the demands of one's physical existence. That's certainly uh, a part of it. But frankly, I doubt there's anyone in this room who, if they got a little bit fed up with not being able to find satisfaction in the sensory world, will say, right, here we go, 15 years on one leg. <laughs> it's a little bit too extreme. What we are more likely to do is adopt some kind of religious discipline, which again has a whole range from self-flagellation, which still goes on in some of the Catholic orders, but the Buddha here includes virtue and vow, pure livelihood, celibacy. And surely we're going to respond, but I thought he encouraged those things. So why does he list them here? And this is not the only place this occurs. We'll come back to this. Uh, it's a text that's not particularly well known, I think because it is rather troubling. What it seems to be pointing to is that the two dead ends are the dead ends of the world and the dead ends of religion. That's how I understand it. <laughs> the religious people, um, as we know only too well, um, seem to take a kind of, of pride or even a kind of self-importance and a feeling of self-justification and, and self-righteousness in the fact that they're following a bunch of rules or that they're not having sex or they're living in a very pure and refined way. And we can extend this also into certain kinds of dietary fads 
I think is often the case in our culture. Um, but we can also extend it, I think, for example, we have in our adolescents um, today young uh, men and women who literally cut themselves, who self-harming, um, who, who get into anorexia or bulimia. I wonder if these are not, in a way, our sort of contemporary equivalents to some extent of this, this other, uh, of the, 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 this opposite of sensory indulgence. We then go into self-harming, whether it be of a religious or whether it be of a more secular kind. I think it's not um, that uncharacteristic of human behavior throughout the ages to veer between these two poles. Now, when the Buddha says, I have found a middle way that, uh, that does not lead to dead ends, he's basically pointing to um, a path that does not slip into the extremes either of indulgence of, in this world and in the senses, but nor does it slip into the extremes of indul indulging in uh, forms of religious or other um, constraint or punishment, however we might define that. I think it, these different passages make his middle way um, a lot clearer, but also, I think, a lot more difficult to actually pin down in the specifics of our life here and now. And it's also, I think, worth reiterating the point that this middle way is not about just becoming more spiritual, in other words, becoming more mindful or more concentrated, but it has to do with how we see the world, how we think about it, how we motivate ourselves, how we talk, how we act, how we work, how we apply our energies, our efforts, how we pay attention to things, and how we focus and concentrate. So the Buddha is suggesting a way of life that is somehow not trapped in the extremes of either religion or the extremes of worldly indulgence. And that's difficult, I think, to, to be clear about. I think it's very challenging because our habit is to go one way or the other. Now, when he describes Mara as a dead end or as an imposer of limits or ends, Mara is not understood just as certain psychological attachments, although that's certainly part of it, but Mara is said somehow to permeate the very structure of life itself. Uh, Mara is often depicted as, as the body, as the thoughts, as the feelings, as the minds, as the senses, everything. In other words, the condition we are in is one that is always potentially limiting, that can potentially somehow tie us down, trap us, keep us stuck. Another way in which Mara is depicted is as the drought demon called Namuchi. And in fact, in, in a number of the earlier passages where Mara first appears in the Buddhist canon. He's not called Mara, he's called Namuchi. Namuchi is a Vedic god, the one who prevents the monsoon or the rains. And in Vedic mythology, Indra, the king of the gods, has to strike Namuchi 
with his Vajra in order that Namuchi will release the rain. Now that, I think, is a very powerful metaphor. And what it suggests, I think, is that uh, Buddha, as the counterpole to Mara, is that which is the um, equivalent to the release of the rains. In other words, the free flowing of water, which is, of course, that which <coughs> nourishes life. And again, I don't think it's an accident that when the Buddha describes um, the, the first stage of awakening, he describes it as entering the stream. Again, a metaphor in which there is a flowing of water unimpeded and unhindered by any blockages. This is the kind of language that um, seems to be um, entailed with this idea of the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path that is not stuck in these two extremes. The Buddha then uh, jumps without transition to the Four Noble Truths. Now, of course, we're aware that the Fourth Noble Truth is the Eightfold Path. In other words, we have a picture that is both com that is common to both the the parable of the city, as well as to this text here, where the Eightfold Path leads to the Four Noble Truths, and then the, the practice and the fulfillment of the tasks of the Four Noble Truths, which culminate in the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Truth, which leads to the Four Noble Truths, which culminate in the Eightfold Path. And you can see where I'm going. <laughs> so what we have here is um, a positive feedback loop. We don't, we're not describing here a set of four propositions or four truths, each of which has to be somehow understood and then you, then you get enlightened. But rather, the Buddha is describing a process that in a sense goes on endlessly. There is no point at which it stops. But in fact, even the, the cessation bit is actually only significant because when craving stops, even momentarily, that is what allows the emergence of another way of life here and now, the Eightfold Path, the Fourth Truth. And then when you get to the end of the Eightfold Path, mindfulness and concentration, what do you concentrate on? What are you mindful of? And that would return us back to the first truth of dukkha, which, as the Buddha says, means the entire psychophysical condition we're in. So we turn our mindfulness and our concentration, hopefully that have tapped a slightly deeper level by that point, back onto the world we're in now. So it's a constant uh, spiraling, deepening, but essentially processual process or processual uh, path. So the awakening is really not the awakening to anything. It is the awakening to a way of being in the world, a process that's never stopping, that's continuously surprising us, that is continually throwing up new challenges, new conflicts, new joys, 
new crises. And each moment, we are called upon, if we try to live according to this model, to respond to this according to the values that are implicit in this, in this practice. In other words, vision, understanding, motivation, speech, action, livelihood, etc., etc. So I'm going to stop there, and tomorrow morning um, we'll go into each of the four truths and look at each of the four tasks that each truth um, entails, so that we get, hopefully, a clearer picture of what this process not only looks like, but how it might be translated into um, action in our own lives um, in 21st century Toronto. <laughs> <laughs> Should we have tea now?